We've been studying our way through the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And this is going to be the third week that we've spent on the longest verse in the Bible. In the original Greek, verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 of Ephesians are all one verse. They also contain some of the most important truths we could ever learn. This verse tells us where we came from and where we're going, who we are, why we're here, and what God has done for us. Last week we finished by reading in verse 13 that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then in verse 14 it says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? Other translations say that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. So what is earnest money? It's simply good faith money. It's a down payment. Let's imagine you come to me after the service today and you say, Jeff, I've had my eye on your 1995 champagne gold Ford Windstar in the parking lot for several weeks now, and, and I want it. I want to buy it from you. And I say to you, well, uh, I'm not sure you're going to be able to get it. I don't know if the bank is going to give you the $20,000 that you need. This is a very in-demand vehicle. And you say, no, 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 I really want it. I'm going to go to the bank and I'm, I'm going to get the money. But I have a concern, you see, and my concern is, well, well, what if I hold it for you? You go to the bank and the bank rejects your application for a loan. But during that time, somebody comes to me who's a cash buyer because this vehicle is so in demand and a cash buyer says, I want to buy the vehicle and I turn that deal down and lose out on it because I'm waiting for you. And then your deal falls through. What if that happens? I I don't want to lose out on $20,000 for this prime piece of automotive genius. And you say, well, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you some good faith money. I'm going to give you a down payment to let you know that I'm serious, let you know that I mean business. And I say, okay, okay, give me, give me a couple of thousand dollars and I'll hold the vehicle for you. I'll pull it off the market and I will rebuff all these other potential buyers and hold it for you because you've put down some earnest money. You've given me a down payment to show me that you're serious about owning this vehicle. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' down payment on us. When Jesus Christ becomes our Lord and Savior, he gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a good faith payment, an earnest payment. But what is the Holy Spirit a down payment for? Verse 14 says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. What is our inheritance? Let's flip back to verse 11. In verse 11, you're going to notice something. It says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in, and now we find out who this him is, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. This is the first fill-in on your outline. Jesus Christ is our inheritance. Jesus Christ is our inheritance. I'd like to believe that God has given me the gift of teaching, but I do not have the ability to accurately express to you how amazing that statement is. Jesus Christ himself is our inheritance. He is our great prize. 
And when we see him face to face, when we behold him in his unrestrained glory, there will be nothing within us that in any way will ever long for anything more again, ever. Jesus will simply be enough. Enough for what? For everything. Every longing, every desire, every dream, every hope, every wish, everything, all will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And for the first time in our existence, we will be completely satisfied. During the first week of our study in Ephesians, we talked about the great challenge, perhaps the, perhaps the greatest challenge that we all face as believers, and that is to live in light of the true nature of reality. And this is it. This is the big picture. We're going to heaven. This life and everything we see and experience is not true reality, but true reality is what is going on in the spiritual world and what will continue forever. True reality is our eternal destination and home. We're going to heaven. It's not something that's just a nice story we tell ourselves to feel better. It's the truth. And when we understand this, when we understand we're going to heaven, it changes everything about how we choose to live while we're here on this earth. When you understand that the satisfaction you crave so deeply is in fact your eternal destiny in heaven with Christ, you won't spend your life trying to find it in earthly things. You won't spend your life trying to make it all come together perfectly here. But instead, while here on the earth, you will search for and find satisfaction in the same place you will find it ultimately in eternity, in Jesus Christ. I wish there was a way that we could understand this more clearly and grasp this more deeply because it changes everything. Have you ever noticed how rarely you're satisfied? Most of us are craving something right now. Are you craving sleep? Some of you are craving food. Some of you are thinking, I wish it was warmer in here. Some of you are thinking, will we ever finish chapter one in Ephesians? You know, I love Nanaimo bars. I love Nanaimo bars. I remember when we moved back here from the States, walking into a Starbucks, and it was as if a light from heaven was illuminating the Nanaimo bar behind the heated food barrier at the counter in Starbucks. And I realized that I had forgotten all about the greatest dessert that has ever existed, the Nanaimo bar. And recently God provided an entire tray of Nanaimo bars for me to enjoy. And I did. And I ate them because I craved them. But I didn't eat them to the point of satisfaction and say, that's enough. I'm satisfied. Oh no. I ate Nanaimo bars to the point of bloating. And once again, dissatisfaction. So let me ask you, when was the last time you were completely satisfied and conscious? You don't get to count sleep as being satisfied. When were you actually last awake and satisfied, longing or wanting nothing? It's been a while, hasn't it? When we arrive in the presence of Jesus, we will, for the first time in our existence, be completely satisfied. Abraham got this. He understood the gravity of the promises of God. He understood the comparison between this world and the eternity that awaited him in heaven. 
And that understanding of heaven changed his perspective. It made Abraham see the foolishness of building a kingdom on this earth when our greatest achievements here would be laughed at by anyone who resides in the glory of heaven. If you were to show someone in heaven the greatest mansion that's ever existed on the earth and they were to compare it to their living situation in heaven, they would look at it and say, is that where the dog lives? Because the glory of heaven surpasses the greatest glory of earth on a scale that we could never grasp until we get there ourselves. By many accounts, Abraham was at times in his life the wealthiest man on earth. But this is what Hebrews 11 says about him. In verse 9, it says, By faith he, Abraham, dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, Abraham understood his eternal destiny, heaven, with such clarity that even when he received the blessings God had for him in this life, he viewed himself as a foreigner on earth. Some translations say Abraham considered himself an alien because he understood that this was not his home. In fact, once he got that glimpse of heaven, it changed his perspective so much that despite his incredible wealth, he lived out his life intense not because he was demotivated but because he was satisfied you can write this down a vision of heaven satisfied abraham once he had seen where he was going he didn't feel that same need to build a perfect kingdom here on earth and flaunt his wealth and live in the lap of luxury because he saw where he was going and when people would say you got to build yourself a castle you got to do something to let everyone around you know how wealthy you are Abraham's response would be, why? I'm not even going to be here that long. When you've seen heaven and you understand that Jesus is our inheritance, you won't spend your life trying to get a faster car or a bigger house here on earth. You won't try and build paradise on this planet, but you'll be satisfied in Christ while you're here because your goal becomes heaven and your goal becomes Christ. Have you noticed how easy it is to become bitter? when your expectation is everything coming together in this life on earth. You become bitter towards the people who you perceive as stopping it from all coming together for you. And you think to yourself, my life would be perfect if it weren't for my boss. Everything would come together if it weren't for my spouse. Or I'd be happy if I didn't have them in my family. Or all I need is that loan paid off. If I could just get into that relationship or out of this one, then, then it would all come together. Or maybe if, if that person would just die. <laughs> when you put the pressure of perfection on other people, it's a recipe for poisonous relationships. Married people, hear me. Don't expect your spouse to fulfill you. Single people, hear me. Stop looking for a relationship with the expectation that it will fulfill your deepest needs. That's a recipe for disaster. I can see the Match.com profile now. What I'm looking for in a relationship is a person who will make me happy every day, know my every need and fulfill it, 
always say the right thing at the right time and never, ever, ever make me sad. I'm a simple girl. <laughs> Yikes. What you need in another person is someone who finds their fulfillment in Christ and doesn't expect you to make their life perfect. Stop looking for Jesus Christ in a spouse and look for a spouse who looks to Jesus. Because here's the truth. No human relationship will ever fully satisfy you. So stop expecting them to. Have you noticed how bitter we become towards God when everything isn't perfect? The folly of this line of thinking. If I could just fix this one thing, it would all come together. The folly is that even if you fix that one thing, something else in your life is going to break while you were busy fixing that one thing. If you get your work situation just right and find that dream boss who finally appreciates you, I guarantee that some other area will go wrong. Some relationship will become engulfed in tension. The home will experience a crisis. An expensive item will break. Your car will have issues. There will almost always be something. Sometimes people do have it all. They get everything that the world around them says they need in order to be happy. But imagine the depression that sets in for that person when they have it all and it's still not enough. Sure, they talk it up and would never publicly admit it, but they're still not fulfilled. And that's why we see people, we see celebrities, people who seemingly have it all, fame, money, power, success, sex, relationships, good looks. We see people who have it all develop addictions issues with drugs, take their own life, end up in idiotic after idiotic relationship. The reason that happens is because they have everything that is supposed to make them happy in life and it hasn't fulfilled them. And now there's just despair and depression and hopelessness because they refuse to turn to Christ and he's the only thing that's really going to fulfill them. Solomon had it all. Power, fame, wisdom, woman, sex, riches, glory. And Solomon was a guy that God handpicked to serve as an example for us of what it is like to be given everything you could ever want. Solomon had it all. He, he wasn't famous for being famous. He was famous because he was wiser and smarter than everybody else. He was a philosopher, a botanist, a scientist, an author, a poet, a songwriter. He was everything. You, you just don't find all those traits in one person. But it was a God-inspired existence that Solomon had. He had over 700 concubines, which if you do the math, is a different woman every night for, well, well, let's not do that math, but you get the idea. Solomon got to try everything that would please the flesh, everything that would please our carnal nature. And the result is that he wrote down his philosophical observations in a book called Ecclesiastes. Solomon is somebody I like to call the world's first demotivational speaker. Because if you imagine the, the public book reading of his new book, Ecclesiastes, this is what he writes in just the second verse. This is his conclusion on life. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. 
Words from a man who had the resources to try and find happiness everywhere other than in God. And he couldn't do it. Solomon didn't finish well. He ended his life distant from God, miserable and unfulfilled, because he tried to find happiness everywhere else. Christian, here is the great truth about being satisfied in life and freeing yourself from bitterness. If you can't be content and at peace where you are right now, you'll never be. If you can't be content and at peace where you are right now, you'll never be. There is no configuration of circumstances that will give you peace and contentment. Because the truth is being content and at peace has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has everything to do with the one who is holding you together. And it has everything to do with having him as your goal, your prize, your inheritance, your purpose. It has everything to do with understanding the big picture, the true nature of reality, that this life is, as the word says, a vapor and a mist. This isn't your home. This isn't heaven. This isn't everything the way it should be. You are not the way you should be. Find your satisfaction in Christ and find your contentment in knowing that this life is a short time and then we get to experience ultimate fulfillment for eternity in the presence of Jesus. If you're single for now, be content. If you're married, be content. If your work is a joy or a struggle every day, be content. Wherever you are in life, Stop tying your contentment to your circumstances and be content in Christ. Let it go. I was thinking about why, why Jesus doesn't just fix it all right now. I mean, we all know he could, so why doesn't he, why doesn't he just fix all my problems? Is this a powerful testimony? You know what I discovered? I discovered that when everything in my life goes perfectly, I'm happy. And that's my testimony. That's, that's not a powerful testimony at all. Because your happiness is completely tied to your circumstances and it's no great achievement. It's nothing meaningful to be happy when everything is perfect. There's no testimony in that. But the great testimony of the Christian is this is what I was going through. This is what I am going through. But I have peace and I have joy because of Jesus. He is holding me together. People look on at that and say, wow, wow. What's going on with them? When your life still radiates peace and joy in trying circumstances, Jesus is greatly glorified because there's nothing else in your life that can be used to explain away your joy. And yet you are joyful because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Jesus also doesn't fix things right now because this life is all we have to store up for ourselves, treasures in heaven. I think sometimes Jesus looks down at us and says, I'm going to let you endure in that circumstance for a little while. I'm going to let you persevere and build up some heavenly treasure because your heavenly account is running a little low. Well, let's be honest, super low. Our heavenly father desires us to store up as much treasure in heaven as possible. Because he loves us and that's what a good father wants. He wants good for us 
and suffering down here for a short time for the sake of eternal reward is the best decision we could ever make. None of us are going to get to heaven and experience our eternal rewards and then say, uh, yeah, I wish that I could have just had it fixed right away instead. I wish that I could have just had that pain taken away from me instead of having this eternal reward right now. No, I think when we get our reward in heaven and we can't even fathom what that's going to be, I think we'll say, wow, all I had to do for this was persevere for a little bit. Persevere for a second compared to the scope of eternity. And this is my reward. Wow. I don't think we trade it for the world. So we've got to remember that big picture. This life is, this life is an atom in size compared to the universe of eternity. Enduring hardship in this life unites us with the sufferings of Christ. You know, Jesus was fully human when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying the night before he was going to be handed over to the authorities to begin the process of his crucifixion. Jesus knew what was coming. He wasn't surprised when they came to arrest him. He wasn't surprised when they beat him within an inch of his life, and he wasn't surprised when they drove the nails into his body and raised him up on the cross. Jesus was fully human when he cried out to his heavenly Father, if there be any other way, let this cup be taken from me. And Jesus was fully human when the capillaries in his forehead burst from stress, causing him to literally sweat drops of blood. Jesus didn't wrestle with knowing the will of his heavenly father. He wrestled with submitting to it. Man, can you identify with that? Isn't that true of all of us? How often do we claim we're praying to know the will of God or praying for direction from God when the truth is we already know what we should do? What we're really wrestling with is will we submit to the will of the father? And in those moments... We have just a taste of what Jesus went through as he wrestled with the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he wrestled with, am I strong enough to follow God's will in this? God, can I do it? And in those moments when we are wrestling with submitting to the will of the Father, persevering and enduring in hard circumstances, our response should be to remember Jesus. And say, thank you, thank you, Jesus Christ, that when you wrestled with the will of the Father, you submitted. And because you submitted, I will get to spend eternity with you. Because you submitted to the will of your Father, you are now my inheritance. So I will gladly submit to the Father as well for this short time that I might gain a heavenly reward that will last forever. And we pray as Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done. And we endure because we're going to heaven. We're going to heaven. The big picture of how we are to live in light of this truth was laid out by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter six. It says this in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. That last verse really makes it crystal clear, doesn't it? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When you and I take a step back and look at our lives, how we make decisions, how we prioritize, how we spend our time, our talent, and our finances, could it be concluded that our heart is in heaven or here on earth? Do our decisions reveal a belief that we're going to spend eternity with Christ or do they reveal a delusion that we're going to spend eternity here on earth with whatever we build for ourselves here from our worldly perspective wise people say for retirement my generation looks on at people who say for retirement and we're blown away that they have the wisdom to look 30 40 50 years into the future and make wise decisions now That blows our minds. We're we're such an ADD, instant gratification generation. And it's only getting worse. You know, the price difference between McDonald's and a sit-down restaurant isn't really that big anymore. But McDonald's is still packed because I want it now. I want that burger right now. I don't care if it's not that good. I want it now, 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 now. And so there's an economic crisis engulfing Europe right now. Because nobody wanted to look at the future. They all said, let's spend money now and we'll figure something out later. And almost the entire continent of Europe is an economic crisis. The economy of the United States is collapsing. And still the solution being proposed is spending more money now and figuring out how to pay for it later. It's all about instant gratification. And in our world, we struggle to think ahead and grasp the future that is coming. Imagine that you grew up living at the base of this cliff, and it was this cliff that extended up into the mountains. All you ever saw up there were clouds, and you just thought, well, this is a giant cliff. And then one day, out of the blue, a basket comes down, lowered by a rope from the top of the cliff through the clouds. And there's a note in this basket, and it says, we are the people of cliff topness. I really thought about how to name this town and put a lot of effort into it. We're the people of cliff topness. And up here on the top of this cliff is the most beautiful town you could ever imagine. On a clear day last week, one of our citizens looked down and realized there were people living at the bottom of this cliff there in the desert. Up here, it's temperate. It's a beautiful climate, four distinct seasons. The water drains away when it rains. There's never mud. It's abundant in natural resources. It's beautiful to look at. Life here is incredible. It's almost no work because the climate and the atmosphere and the natural resources just give us everything we need. This is an amazing place to live. And and everyone here is wonderful and giving and generous and kind and thinks of others before themselves. And because of that, We want to invite you to come up here and live with us in cliff topness. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a giant basket and a strong rope and a strong pulley system that we're actually going to use to to pull you and your family up here. It's going to take us about two months. And so, so in the meantime, we're going to lower a basket every day and you can put things into that basket that you want to send ahead of you so that when we pull you up, all your stuff will be up here. But not only that, we, we, we're so rich and wealthy up here in Cliff Topness. You're not going to even be able to grasp until you get here how nice it is to be here. 
So we don't want you to be here and live in a state of poverty. So for everything that you send up, we're going to multiply it by 10. So if you send up one brick to build a house up here, we're going to give you 10 bricks. And the effort that you put in, even the labor of carrying that bricks, we're going to multiply by 10. So we'll give you 10 bricks and we'll give you 10 people to move those bricks for you and help you build your house. If you send up $10, we'll multiply it by 10. We'll turn it into 100. So you're going to want to send up as much as you can in advance so that you'll be set when you get up here. And you say, that's great. That's an incredible deal. I can't wait to get there. Can't wait to be there. Day one goes by and they lower the basket. And then they pull it up and there's nothing in it. People of Cliff Topness are puzzled and think it must be an oversight on your part. So they lower the basket again and then they, they pull it up again the second day and there's still nothing. They do it again on the third day and there's, there's still nothing. They send down a letter and they say, I, I don't know if you're grasping this, but it's less than two months till you're, you're coming up here. You're going to want to start sending some stuff up. And imagine their surprise when you send back a letter saying, well, here's the thing. I'm working on finishing my home down here. I got a few more alterations. I got to make some expansions. I'm adding a pool and, um, and then I'm going to be done. And then I'm going to really focus on uh, what we're sending up to Cliff Topness. And they say, are you, are, are you crazy? Do, do you not understand? You're, you're going to finish that and then you're going you're gonna to leave. Why? Just stop investing anything you have down there and send it up here. This is where you're going. And you say, you don't, you don't understand. Down here, wise people finish what they start. Down here, wise people invest in their homes. I don't think you guys understand what it means to live wisely down here. We would all look on at that man and say, what a fool. What a fool. But the truth is, we do the same thing with full knowledge of our eternal destiny. Through our decisions in this life, we settle repeatedly for pennies here on earth rather than billions in heaven. There are many Christians who we admire because of what they've built down here on this earth who probably have heavenly bank accounts that are almost empty. And I'm sure there are many Christians who we look at and consider foolish because they've spent their entire lives everything for the glory of Jesus. But from heaven's perspective, they are wiser than Solomon and they have chosen well. And their heavenly bank account is overflowing with treasures that they will enjoy for eternity. I'm not preaching against success and wealth in this life. I'm preaching that those things are only vehicles to be used for the glory of God. Just as we are given a measure of time and just as we're given a measure of talent, we are also given a measure of financial resources. And all those things should be used to pad our heavenly bank account instead of our earthly bank account. If we are wise and have true understanding, we will live with eternity in mind. When somebody really gets this, you don't have to come up with some other benefit to get him or her to serve a truth, uh, to serve a church. I was thinking about this the other day and that in the church, it's considered normal if we serve once a month, once a month. And I kind of feel like as the church, we might be doing our people a disservice because serving at your church isn't an obligation. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to invest in something that really matters. Holding somebody else's kid in the nursery might not seem wise to the people around you. Why would you get up early on Sunday morning to do that? 
Why would you get up early to lay out chairs on a Sunday morning? You should be sleeping in. But for the people who get it, they understand, man, this is an opportunity. And I want to invest wisely. I will have eternity to rest. I will have eternity to sleep in. I will have eternity to be refreshed. This life, we understand, is simply packing a suitcase for heaven. That's the best analogy I can think of. This life is all about getting ready for where we're going next. And do you realize that we have no other way to say thank you to God for what he's done for us through Jesus on the cross than this life, the decisions we make in this life? That's all we have to say thank you to him, the way we choose to live this life. The prayer I have for me and my family and everyone I know is that we would live lives that scream, thank you, Jesus, by the decisions we make and the way we choose to spend our lives. I'm flying to uh, Las Vegas later today, actually, for a, uh, a church planner assessment and training couple of days. And I'm going to be going through airport security. And I was just thinking about how glad I am that airport security has figured out the grave danger posed by more than three liquid ounces of shampoo or toothpaste. I'm so glad we've solved this security crisis because when I think about the decades that we were flying around with people who had full bottles of shampoo in their luggage, oh man, I tell you it's terrifying. But thank God that we are no longer under the threat of more than three fluid ounces of aftershave or cologne. Now we're safe. Thank goodness. Maybe like me, you've had, to, uh, you've had to leave things at airport security because when they scanned your bag, the contents didn't pass all the requirements of what you could bring up with you on an aircraft. And I think that our transaction when we go to heaven is going to look a little bit like that. There's going to be people who, who show up at heaven with their armfuls of stuff, their cars, their houses, the money they've accumulated, the liquid assets, the investment portfolio, and they're going to say, here's what I'm bringing with me. And the angel working the checkpoint is going to say, mansion, can't bring it with you. Cars, nope. Investment portfolio, got to leave it. Fame and status, sorry, Jesus has it all up here. Popularity, Jesus again. Well, what can I bring? And then the next person's going to be waved through as that person stands there whining about the fact that nothing they wanted to bring with them is passable. The next person's stuff will be evaluated by that angel who'll say, that season of secret loneliness that was so hard, you did well. That's coming with you. Those hours you spent holding somebody else's baby at church so that their parents could hear the gospel, that's coming too. Those years you waited and begged for me to change your spouse, you were faithful. Bring it with you. That sickness that wouldn't leave you, but you kept praising God. Oh yeah, there's room for that. And in a moment, some very successful people will have a lot less than some very average people. People will look at your life and will be puzzled by the decisions you make and the way you choose to live. But it's only because they don't understand the big picture. They don't understand the gravity of eternity. But you've had your eyes opened. You, you get it. And so you're able to choose well. You're able to live well.
Is life hard? Sometimes heartbreakingly so. But it's also an opportunity given to us by God himself to invest wisely in our eternity. I spoke with a believer just this week who hasn't been to any church in weeks, and I heard the familiar refrain, I've got a lot going on right now. I've got school, I've got work, there's some books I'm reading. I've just got a whole lot going on right now, and so it's not a good time for me to be at church. I used to get mad about that, but, but now I'm just filled with a profound sense of sadness because I've come to realize, and you probably have too, that, that there'll always be a lot going on. There'll always be a lot going on. And the sadness that strikes me in those situations now is the fact that here is one more person who knows Jesus, but they're missing it. They're missing the whole point of life. They're missing the whole reason that we were given breath by God. That's to know him and be known by him and to love him with our lives. One of the stories in scripture that always brings me back to focusing on Jesus is his interaction with Mary and Martha in their home. Story is found in Luke chapter 10. It starts in verse 38. It says, now it happened as they went that he, Jesus, entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus's feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Here's the truth. There will always be things to do, places to go, things to be troubled and worried about. I pray that Jesus would help us to understand that there's nothing more pressing. There's nothing more urgent. There's nothing more important than him. One thing is needed, and it's Jesus. But we all know that he's not pushy, and the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. And he never forces his way in. He waits for us to come to him. He waits for us to invite him in. And everything else screams, this needs to be done right now. Do this, do this, do this. And the first thing we always cut when life gets full is Jesus. We cut our daily time with him. We cut our prayer life. We cut our time in the word. We cut church. Because everything else seems more urgent. It is a tried and true strategy of Satan to get us away from God with busyness. Busyness. But there is nothing more urgent. There is nothing more pressing than knowing Jesus. The prayer that I pray most for my five kids is simply, Father, let them know you. Let them see and understand what they have in you. Let them be consumed with you. Because I really believe that if God will answer that one prayer for my kids, he'll take care of everything else and everything else will take care of itself. How do I know that? Because Jesus gave us a promise in his word when he was talking about having our needs met. 
In Matthew 6.33, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What are all these things? Everything you need in life. What a promise. What a promise. It's so simple and yet so hard to remember that if we seek him first, everything else will take care of itself. But if we try and take care of everything else first, we'll never get around to seeking him. That is the truth. Can you believe that Jesus Christ is our inheritance? But here's where it gets flat out crazy. Jesus says that not only is he our inheritance, but we are his inheritance. In Ephesians 1 verse 18, we read about the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. When I hear that, my first thought is, Jesus, you should have higher standards because you could do a lot better. This is kind of like the guy walking into the room with the girl, with the girl and, and everybody looks at the guy and, and thinks, I wonder if he's rich. Because this is just not adding up. He's a one, she's a ten. That's what I feel like when, when I hear that we're his inheritance. I think we're a booby prize. But that's not what Jesus thinks. Scripture tells us that he bought us with his own blood. That's how precious we are to him. And not only did he purchase us with that blood, but he's made us beautiful. He's made us beautiful. Through his blood, he's washed away and covered up every sin, every imperfection in us. And he has made us beautiful. This is the great and glorious truth about what Jesus has done. From his perspective, from heaven's perspective, we've been made perfect. When he looks at us right now, he sees us as perfect because all of our sin has been covered by his blood. He's made us beautiful. From his perspective where he is in heaven right now, sitting on his throne, we're a fitting bride. We're a perfect match for him. He has lifted us up out of the pit, out of the mud, and he's made us beautiful. Wow. This life is our opportunity to store up gifts for that wedding day when we, the church, will be the bride of Christ in heaven for eternity. We're storing up treasures in heaven, gifts for that wedding day. What are you going to bring to that wedding? This morning, I want to ask you a few questions. Is there something in your life that you have begun to believe holds the key to your happiness? other than Jesus? Is there something that, that you believe, man, if I could just change this one thing, then I'd be happy. I want you to know that God has good plans for you and he's working all things for your good, according to his word. But you'll never be satisfied in anything other than him. This morning, I want to invite you to let that thing go and give it into the hands of your savior, Jesus. Let it become something that you pray for and hope for, but don't let it be your God. Don't let it be your idol. Don't let it be your hope. Your hope is in Jesus, nothing else. Let him be all of those things. Confess that he's all you need 
And by the power of his Holy Spirit, you will receive peace and joy and you can be satisfied no matter what your circumstance is. How are you investing your life? Is the way you're choosing to live and investing your life proving that you believe you're going to spend eternity in heaven? Or is it proving that you think you're going to spend eternity here with your stuff? If you need to change your priorities this morning, ask God to help you do that. Maybe you are investing wisely and you're just tired. You're tired and you just need encouragement this morning that you are choosing wisely. You are running your race well. I pray in Jesus' name that you would receive his energy. You would receive his strength. And you would be filled once more with his presence. And you'd be reminded that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. Keep going. Keep going. I was, uh, I was playing a board game with my oldest son, Noah, called Boxes or Briefs. It's a board game, just to remind you of that again. And in this game, there are two chips that you can use. And one of them says true and one of them says funny. And there's a whole bunch of them. And in the game, you have to accrue these chips. And the first person to get to seven or eight or something like that wins. So you have all these cards in the game that have statements on them. And in the way Noah decides to play this game, because he always makes up his own rules and then changes them halfway through so he can win, uh, Noah was having me read out these cards. And he would get a chip that says true every time I read a statement that turned out to be true. And I had to try and get all the funny ones. And he reads out this card. And it says, someday I will be happy. And Noah smiles, looks up at me and says, that's true. Because someday I'll be in heaven, right, Dad? And uh, I got choked up and I'm sure he wondered why Dad cries all the time <laughs> again. I got choked up and I just said, right, son, you're right. You will be in heaven and you will be happy. And Noah is not some morbidly depressed six-year-old who thinks he's never happy. But even at the age of six, he understands that when you talk about happy in the context of heaven, you're talking about something completely different to what it means to be happy on this earth. You're talking about the kind of happiness that satisfies forever. And I'm blessed that he already understands he's only going to find that in heaven. And my prayer for him is that he never feels like it has to all come together here on this earth. But you and I will be satisfied in the presence of Jesus. We will be satisfied in the presence of Jesus. I want you to know in closing, Jesus loves you. And he will satisfy you.